if we look at our membership of the church as if it's providing us sort of this perfect meal and that sort of everything's laid out for us and all we need to do is sort of accept it, I, th- I think that's a too simplistic approach. I think part of our faith does require an element of wrestle. We need to be ad- addressing these issues. We need to be talking more openly about them and recognize that if we duck the issues, people tend to go elsewhere for answers. Uh, and by so doing, often fail to understand the wider and deeper context. Years ago, Charles Lawson, an active member of the church in the UK, became troubled after watching so many young people grow up and out of the church. Prompted to delve further into the reasons why, he found himself embarking on a faith journey of his own, tackling the hard questions facing the rising LDS generation. The result of his searching is a new book entitled The Millennial Shot, A Spiritual Inoculation for the Modern Latter-day Saint which explores the top 10 causes for the millennial generation leaving the church. While his book doesn't profess to have all the answers, it does provide context and faith-promoting insights to better understand certain issues, policies, and practices which can trouble so many of us. Charles is a husband, father of six, and convert to the church. He works as an investment manager for a stockbroking firm and is the eldest quorum president in his ward. In his spare time, he enjoys dragging his family on canoeing and hiking trips, which often turn out to be much longer than anyone had anticipated. In fact, with his children getting older and wiser, he's facing increasing hostility over the length of his ambitious outdoor adventures, and is having to accept that he can no longer call the shots like he used to. I'm Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith a podcast where we talk with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith across Australia and New Zealand. Thanks, Charles or Charlie, for joining. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Maddie. Looking forward to this discussion. Uh, All well. All well back in the UK. Now, for Australian listeners, let's just establish the Australian connection here. You're not Australian yourself, but you are married to an Aussie um, who happens to be a very good friend of my mum's. That's right, hey? That is true for my sins. Uh, <laughs> I met a, a, a wonderful, good-looking Australian girl many, many moons ago um, and 30-plus. Uh, and here we are, six children later and uh, happily married, loving the Aussie connection and, uh, and, and life here. Yeah, and you've got a son out in Perth at the moment, and who knows? I keep hearing from your wife that more children are going to come move to Australia, so we'll see what happens uh, in the future. <laughs> our children tell us that the greatest gift we've ever given them is an Aussie passport. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I suspect more will follow. Absolutely. Excellent. I look forward to it. Um, well, the book you've written, it's really fascinating and addresses a lot of uh, reasons why LDS members are leaving the church. Now, I want to get into why you wrote the book and and where that came from. But first of all, maybe we can just get a little bit of introduction to who you are. You're a convert. You, you joined the church in your 20s after learning about it through your wife, Michelle. Can you just tell me a little bit about this time in your life and, and how you decided to be baptized? So I was um, so grew up in the Church of England and, and always had a, a relatively strong faith in Christ, but invariably my sort of late teens, early 20s wandered a little bit and, and it wasn't sort of my, perhaps my highest priority, but I did always know that I always had a, a belief in, in Christ. And I came across, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God in, in the book of James. And it and it struck with me. And uh, anyway, so I, so I was I was seeking to a point. Um, but kind of long story short, I, I'm, I met Michelle and within a couple of years, uh, we were married. 
and it was a, a wonderful time. But I didn't. Uh, we were married outside the church. I was in. I was in the a member of the you know, Church of England. We married there. It took a little bit of a, a while, but after being married for six months or so, um, having attended the Church of England, um, Michelle and I sort of had a, a deal that we would sort of worship together wherever we went. And after about six months, she said, "Look, I'm, you know, let's 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 go back to to my roots." And um, and sure enough, uh, at that point, I came into the LDS Church. My very very first Sunday, um, the bishop tapped me on the shoulder, and I had not been sitting down for more than two minutes. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, "I would love to hear your testimony." <laughs> and and I just looked at him and said, "Fine, I'll, you know," and not, not really understanding what a testimony was. But I did I did get up that first Sunday, and I said to to uh, to the whole congregation there, I said, "I don't really understand um, too much about your faith, but I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn." And um, Treat me kindly, and we'll see where it goes. <laughs> and uh, and there I was, and uh, was baptized about a year later. Wow! Now you've that's really cool. You've had this as your foundation throughout your marriage, and you're raising your six kids. I imagine it wasn't easy transitioning from an Anglican faith and you know a strong British culture to perhaps what you might have thought American church, or at least you know a modern religion. However, here you are. And you've written this book. It seems like whatever journey you've been on, you've you've really asked yourself the hard questions, and you've come through. I guess the other side, you could say, really strong and firm in your testimony. I don't know. Is that an accurate assumption to make? Or it is. I, I've, um, but I recognise that uh, faith is a dynamic thing, and I'm not taking it for granted. Mm. In my 23 years in the church, I've been associated with the youth for 22 of those years. It saddens me that I've seen so many of our our Latter-day Saint youth grow up and grow out of the church, including some of my own children. And and I've that's been my motivation for sort of understanding why. Of course, I'm, I'm I recognise that in the wider Christian context, there, there are many people leaving many faiths, but but even it seems a particularly a, an acute problem for us. And I I absolutely wanted to to understand that from a point of view of of, of helping myself and helping hopefully others um, navigate through what is clearly some difficult issues. Yeah. So what led you to writing this book? What was the process behind this? Maddie, I, th- I believe revelation comes when you're asking the right questions and when it's necessary. And I was asking those questions uh, sincerely. And I, I believe I had an answer from God. Um, and, uh, and it didn't come in a sort of um, very transparent, easy way, but it, but it was a still small voice telling me that I needed to be engaged in this effort. And I, it took a little while to navigate exactly what that meant. But I, it then came, became clear to me as part of the process of this work, um, I needed to, uh, to put pen to paper. And after making that commitment, a few incredible things happened, um, miracles in my life that, that made it possible for this book to come about in the way that it did and the structure that it did and the time it did um, with the resources that it did. It was, it was a, an, an extraordinary thing for, for someone, dare I say, who's struggled with, with, uh, with English and, and who's got um, dyslexia and all, you know, this didn't, this, it, it, it was felt extraordinary to me. It came about, and I would argue, absolutely, uh, with the Lord's help in the Lord's time. I felt that you'd really put a lot of not only thought, but um, I guess spiritual energy, uh, a dedication into it, that it really kind of expressed, uh, as you say, the sadness of, of your soul. 
it was candid, it was direct, it validated and addressed a lot of doubts that a lot of members have, including my own, um, without judgment. And what I liked about it is that it didn't feel condescending or paternalistic in any way, which sometimes can be the approach of, of older members when they're addressing the youth and young adults. So you, you explore the top 10 reasons that people are leaving the church. Could you just provide some context as to how many people are leaving? You say it is, is a big issue. Um, what kind of stats do you have? So the stats came from a survey that was done in, in um, 2016, a survey done in a book published by Jana Reese uh, called The Next Mormons. The Next Mormons, how millennials are, are changing the face of the LDS church. And what was interesting about that uh, is that there's it leans on three three areas. It's uh, pure research data. It's uh, an LDS um, leak, uh, leak data. Um, and then the other research is, is a general society survey. But but of those, it's particularly clear that uh, in the round, three out of four people that are raised in the church ultimately end up leaving in you know, in, a, in terms of the millennial generation. Um, a scary statistic that frightens me. We, we we need to be addressing these issues. We need to be talking more openly about them, uh, more honestly about them, and. Uh, and, and, and recognize that um, if we duck the issues, uh, people tend to go elsewhere for answers. Uh, and by so doing, often fail to understand the wider and deeper context for certain issues or whatever it may be. And that's what I'm, I'm keen to discuss and raise. Because uh, while I'm not presenting the book as having all answers to all, all issues at all, I'm, I'm hoping to provide some insights that, that may help people navigate through uh, some awkward, difficult issues they may find. Yeah, I, I certainly felt that. What it did provide was a framework for thinking about our modern society and how that can coexist with the faith that we have. You can still, say, hold certain morals um, personally and also believe in um, the doctrines of the church. You know, I think there's often more than one way. There's more than one way to, to, um, to connect to God. And if we look at our membership of the church as if it's providing us sort of this perfect meal and that sort of everything's laid out for us and it's just all we need to do is sort of accept it, I, I think it's, that's a too simplistic approach. I think part of our faith does require an element of wrestle. So in, in the book, you address 10 key reasons that millennials are leaving the church. What are some of these reasons? So the top ones are people feeling judged or misunderstood, and and this is simply taking the millennial generation. So we're talking about so typically sort of eighteen to thirty five year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, the number one reason they felt judged or misunderstood. Uh, the second was um, not so much church history, but the, but the but the distrust in church leadership not telling the truth about controversial church history issues is number comes in at number two. Uh, LGBTQ issues um, are also uh, very relevant. And then uh, people couldn't reconcile personal values. They're drifting away. They, um, they, don't, they have problems in understanding or believing in the one true church, Book of Mormon issues, Book of Abraham, sinful behaviors, um, an emphasis on sort of conformity and obedience, which I, I think is important. And then uh, finally, but certainly not last, uh, the role of women. And and, and uh, the issues that uh, many millennials struggle with um, equality-based issues in that sector. Yeah, interesting. And you said the data comes from um, a survey that was conducted. Was it 2016? The 2016, but the, it's over 1,600 people, and just under 600 were uh, for former members of the church. So that's that's not a bad size survey mm. uh, of over 600 former Latter Day Saints. 
and that's that is the structure of the book. I, I lean on, on lean on that. It's I think a really useful framework from which to sort of to understand uh, and address these issues. Well, let's jump into some of them then. What one would you like to start with? What do you think is influencing the young people that you know? Well, let's start with the biggest. Uh, they felt judged or misunderstood. Mm. This one is particularly um, relevant for, for for women. What's interesting is is that um, well, many of us have been on the receiving end of perhaps um, poor leadership or, or insensitive ways of dealing with issues um, or perhaps felt marginalised or, or sort of outside a certain sort of clique or whatever it may be. And, and there's, there's a whole host of reasons why we may have felt judged or misunderstood. I think it's important to do is to sort of try and identify um, some of these issues. And so what I do is I, I take the parable of the prodigal son as the sort of two extreme ways of connecting to God. Uh, with a younger brother, of course, uh, asking for his inheritance, and 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 off he travels and has his rebellion life, and then recognizes, comes to himself, and sort of claws his way back to heavenly father, or so his his father in the story, but representative of heavenly father, and and of course he's he's accepted and loved. It's a wonderful parable, and uh, and often that's the, that's the main focus of the parable. But the, the parable is about two sons, and there's a very very good reason why the elder brother is in the parable. And this is often not discussed as much, but um, what what was you know talking about and understanding about what he was about? I think we can help us in judgmental issues because he also wanted the things of the father and went about uh, obtaining his inheritance in in a, in a much more obedient or outwardly more obedient way. But when the younger brother comes back, his jealousy, his motives for you know he wanted the things the father had as opposed to the love of the father. And that became exposed when the younger brother came back. And that then um, can sort of steer us towards highlighting two extreme ways of connecting to God. The younger brother approach, rebelling and ultimately repenting. And the elder brother approach in terms of trying to live in a more obedient lifestyle and actually by so doing, thinking in many ways, one's sort of um, self-righteousness and you know one can sort of... Uh, have self pride and 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 there, that is, there there is a problematic path, and it's it's clear in the story in the parable that both sons were lost, as Jeffrey R. Holland reminds us, and that I think is 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 important in judgmental issues because we often uh, come up against um, you know elder brothers, Vedicomas, elder brothers in the in the church, um, who sadly portray um, it may seem rather harsh to say, but a rather strict sort of pharisaical sort of lifestyle that can that can really be uh, uh, difficult and offensive to live with and so identifying that behavior putting a little bit of a label on it i think can be helpful before we then need to understand not simply pointing the finger at, at, at others but also recognizing perhaps you know within our own lives you know is there a pharisee in me is a question i ask in the book I think it's important to recognise that um, we are all real people, not ideal people, and trying to navigate our way through um, a, a community of saints uh, who are f- far from from perfect um, is, I think, part of our mortal conditioning as is, as we navigate and, and hopefully become more Christ-like and in, in, in accepting the imperfection both in ourselves and in others. Yeah, uh, judgment. I think the most obvious context to think about it is, you know, from a bishop or from a youth leader. But it is interesting that you pose the question in the book, is there a Pharisee in me? Because I think I've both 
being on the end of judgment and also being the judger. What example, uh, like specific examples do you see of, of judgment? Melly, that's a great question. And perhaps I can just use my own example here. So before I was a member of the church, um, you know, we had this, we had this, uh, was wedding, um, in the church of England, my home church. And when my wife, Michelle sent out some various invitations to her church friends, uh, she was surprised and saddened to find that, uh, many of them decided that they weren't going to be coming to the wedding because she was marrying a non-member. And that was, uh, quite a hard, um, thing for me to understand. I, I couldn't, I was, you know, clearly I, from my perspective, it was sort of, a, I was the wrong sort of Christian. I couldn't help thinking that uh, I was being judged for being the wrong sort of Christian, and that was the reason why they weren't coming to the wedding. It was a rather rude awakening to the LGS Church, mm. and uh, far you know didn't uh, didn't draw me close. Uh, dare I say at that, that particular time? So that I think is you know, a little example that struck me early on that uh, I've struggled with. Mm. One example that I think of is in the context of youth. I have known of youth being turned away from dancers because they were wearing inappropriate shorts and these you know guys like wearing shorts not pants trousers as you would say in the UK or a girl maybe wearing a dress that's too short and I just really struggle with that because if I were to picture the savior at the doors of the chapel welcoming youth in in my mind the way that we are taught about him is that he would be grabbing them by the hands and saying thank you for being here I love you. Let's go in inside. And yet, uh, as you say, with your example, you know, we get caught up in they're not the right kind of Christian. They're not exactly conforming to um, the commandments, so therefore they shouldn't be here. That saddens me. And I wonder about the youth who were turned away. Like, are they still attending church? Because I don't know if I would want to be, you know. I, I think it's, it's it's imperative, you know, and and I, my call in, in the book is to recognise to, to the millennials that when it's your turn to lead, let's lean on the teachings of Joseph Smith in terms of I teach them correct principles and I let them govern themselves. I think we, we really need to have a, a grown-up understanding of exactly the damage that, that, that can be caused by insensitive and inappropriate comments said at, at, at critical times. And uh, as you say, too many earrings or or the length of a dress or whatever it may be. Um, and it is, I find it enormously, enormously frustrating. Uh, not, and, and I think the, the answer comes by way of, um, as you say, Christ-like love and seeking, is there genuine misunderstanding? Or is it, is it simply a, a desire to be fashionable? Can we under, have a little bit of an understanding there without making it insensitive decisions that can cause so many problems? So for young people listening to this, if you're on the end of judgment and you have no say in what's happening, how can we respond? How can someone still remain firm in the church? <laughs> so I think that's a, it's a great question. And, um, and the answer is it's not easy. Um, but I think what, what we want to do is to recognize that we don't want to place our faith in Christ conditional upon a poor decision by a, a local leader or and I think it's really important that we understand that, that as a young person, what am I looking for? I'm looking for the church to support and enhance my direct relationship with Christ. And if such and such a leader turns me away and, and, and I find is judging me for wearing a short dress or whatever it may be, I think it's helpful to recognize in the parable of the prodigal son that the elder brother, the Pharisee who likes of behavior, the elder brother didn't know he was lost. And elder brothers don't know they're lost. The, the, the key to this is to recognize that 
in many cases, it's such judgment is, is clearly inappropriate. This isn't the Savior speaking. The Savior loves us, each and every one of us, wants us to draw closer to him. And in, in by so doing, recognizing that church plays a vital role in supporting our direct relationship with him. I think it's helpful to look in the, in, into, into a wider context. Don't, don't place conditions on your faith based on Snoggins over here who's decided to make an, you know, a rather abrupt ruling that you disagree with. Yeah, thank you. I think one thing that I found helpful personally is, you know, being on the end of some interesting bishop remarks and bishop interviews and trying not to focus on their comments in isolation, but put it into context of the broader doctrine that we're taught from various general authorities, from the prophet, from the scriptures. And if that one comment doesn't really align or it seems like a bit of an outlier, trying to put it to one side and um, thinking more yeah, about my relationship with Christ. I think it's true. Absolutely. We're all on different paths. And, and the, slight, the problem, coming back to your question about the, the dance, is that we're all, what's the right answer in many cases? The right answer in, in addressing youth isn't necessary to have one big blanket policy that, that's so convenient, maybe, but actually in addressing the different people that are on a different faith journey at different levels of their spiritual understanding requires a slightly more bespoke and, and loving approach. And that, that may need to be a little bit of flexibility in certain areas. And that's the, that's the key to this. Um, and, and the, the key to judgment ultimately, dare I say, is, is to us to move to a, um, an area where there is, gr- no, we're not sort of cocooning people and wrapping up in cotton wool and not allowing them to sin, but we're recognizing that sin is a, something that we that we all, we, we all do. Uh, we are designed ultimately to sin. That's not to say that we're designed to love sin, but we were. We were. It's not a design fault either. We we are to to learn from it and grow from it. And I think a more accepting, loving, and informed approach that's more accepting of the sinner, um, and recognizing that we will no doubt growing up in the youth make mistakes, um, but but having a more principle based, more more loving program and that allows us to develop ourselves in a multitude of multifaceted situations that you know that, that can allow for deeper relationships with with non-members and a, and a wider variety of fat. This is I believe the direction the church is is going and I think it's a healthy one. Um, and, and 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 it's it's more tolerant of the sinner. Um, and but that's not diluting what Christ asks of us. But just recognizing that there's more than one way to becoming a disciple of Christ, and uh, and again coming back to the parable of the prodigal son, is that is two examples. Both sons were invited to the feast. One of them was at the feast. We know the younger brother, uh, the elder brother. We don't know. The story is it's a dramatic finish. Um, we don't know if the elder brother who was invited into the feast was he so puffed up with self pride that he actually refused to enter, refused to accept his father's love. We don't know. Um, but it's a it's an interesting question. Well, that I think is a good segue into another one of the issues you explore about the concept of the one true church, which we hear in, you know, every primary member's testimony. I believe the church is true. I resonated with this concept because I suppose the older I get and the more I learn about other faiths and other belief systems, the more I can see the value in everybody's individual life path. And it does feel a little bit arrogant at times to claim that we have, you know, the entirety of the gospel. 
certainly in my darker, more doubting moments, I think about our small numbers. Like to put it into context, you say that the LDS population makes up 16.8 million of 2.5 billion Christians globally. That's only 0.67%. You know, I, I think about that. And I think, well, maybe I am following some minority faith. Do we have it all wrong? You know, what am I doing here? So how can members who have that mindset, particularly young people who might think, what is this like one true church claim about? How can we be reassured that the priesthood keys have been restored through Joseph Smith and that we can remain in this gospel as opposed to another Christian or another um, faith entirely? Okay, Maddie, there's a whole lot there. Yeah. And, um, so so uh, great questions. Um, but I think it starts by uh, us accepting that ultimately we learn from scriptures and Doctrine and Covenants 1. Uh, it's not simply that the one true church is the one true and living church. And I think it's important we recognize that and living. Uh, living things change, they adapt, they grow. Um, and, and with that also, you know, I, I believe, but Joseph Smith ultimately, um, in restoring the priesthood, I believe it was a there was a wider restoration, and um, uh, leading LGS apologist Patrick Mason just talks on this. It, it, I think it's an, it's important that we that we recognise that we are God's children. He loves us. He also teaches us in the Beatitudes, the humble inherit the earth. And I, and I think it's an arrogant notion that we somehow have all the truth and only we have it uh, is is hugely problematic. Um, and uh, and I would tread very carefully on, on sort of um, behavior that encourages, dare I say it, elder brother sort of Pharisee-like sort of uh, behavior that I think is so dangerous. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important we recognize and feel blessed for uh, the truth we have, and we need to appreciate it and respect it. Um, but that's not to say that God doesn't reach out to all his multitude of children in a multitude of ways. You know, that's not God changing his mind, um, but rather reaching out to, we are the results of our experiences and conditioning and cultures, and, and no doubt require different ways to commune with God. And he allows that for his children. He's reaching out for us in, in a multitude of different ways. And I believe I can draw closer to God through the LDS Church than any other. But I but deeply respect um, those of other faiths that, that, that draw close to God in, in their own way. And I love that. That doesn't threaten my faith in any way. I don't feel the need to stand up and, and claim that I have the monopoly on truth. I, we've never claimed that. And I, and I think it's sometimes misunderstood when we, we talk about the one true church. It, it may have been perhaps debatable, but maybe a little bit more important in Joseph's day when there was a, a multitude of different churches. And of course, he went and asked which church was true. Um, but I think it's a more relevant question now the youth are asking is, is it, isn't that? It's more sort of, why is God necessary? Or, or um, what does God do for me? Um, and I think we can get lost in the weeds if we go down a path of elevating our, our own church to the point where we have to sort of go through the church to get to Christ. I, I don't believe that at all. I believe the church enhances my personal relationship with Christ. It's important to understand the difference. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed the part in your book where you point out that truth is scattered liberally across the globe. And that's a, a quote there. 
and that Joseph Smith was the one who encouraged us to get all the good in the world, to receive truth, let it come from whence it may, whether that be, you know, the Bible or the Quran, the Torah, whatever medium we as people have on the earth to receive spiritual insight and revelation, you say, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, that God will find that medium and communicate through it as it will make sense to that person. And not only is the question that you're asking is, yeah, is God relevant? Um, I think on Heavenly Father's end, what also is more important to him is how can I reach out to this person on earth so that they know I am there and that I am relevant and that I love them um, and that that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, through the, the entirety of, of our belief system that it can come from anywhere. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out. It was a really good insight. I recognize that um, we so often hear it in testimony meetings. You know, I, I know the church is true and I, it can lead to problems um, because that, what are we actually basing our faith on? I, I think it needs to be, not saying that's not Christ-centered, but I think it needs to be more obviously Christ-centered. Um, and and that's why I'm, I'm a, a big believer in the church sustaining and supporting our relationship with Christ um, as opposed to us thinking we have to go through the church to somehow justify a relationship with Christ, which we don't. Um, and, and we have so much rich, wonderful doctrine that supports direct personal revelation, and we are all entitled to that. Brilliant. Thank you. So we've talked about judgment. We've talked about uh, the one true church concept. What's another reason that millennials are leaving the church? So, so a big one is the distrust in church leadership, not telling the truth around controversial, controversial church issues. And, and the controversial issues really, are, uh, there are many, but the, the, the two big ones are um, Joseph's polygamy and also the blacks and the priests. And, and it's a big one, particularly for the millennial generation, because we are talking about a generation of of youth that grew up through the church and when these issues might have been naturally discussed they weren't questions if they were ever asked at all uh were never answered properly for the most part where is the forum for asking you know and and if if they were ever asked did the leadership have the the right knowledge and understanding to even address these issues um we haven't i would argue addressed a need and so for those that have left the church, um, when they did have issues such as this, where did they turn? Well, unlike their predecessors, they were able to turn to Google. And uh, Google gave them a random assortment of answers that uh, in many cases, I would argue, didn't provide the context necessary to understand uh, in faith-promoting ways how to navigate these issues. And, and therein lies a problem, and it still remains a problem. But it was particularly acute for a generation who grew up and who's, who understood the internet far better and far faster than, than their parents and their, typically their leaders. And we're just, we were, they were soaking in answers um, that, uh, that sadly has arguably led to many abandoning their faith. And, and, um, and, and that brings me on to another issue, I may say, is this sort of this binary notion. I don't, I don't believe that it's a binary decision. If one comes to the conclusion that the LDS church has let you down in some way and you choose to leave the faith, I, I would argue that a secondary decision then comes in, do I have a faith in Christ? As opposed to, and sadly many have, have just, have a, and in, in abandoning the church, they've abandoned any relationship with God. And I challenge that. Um, I don't believe it's a binary decision. And I, I believe if the LDS church isn't right for you, then, um, then you, there's a multitude of others that you may find be more comfortable with. 
And and that clearly must be more important than simply um, giving up on God altogether. So have I answered your question? Yeah, no, you have. Sorry, I just was wondering, I don't really have the luxury of time to go into explaining the context and like you do in the book behind these issues. Is there a way that you think you can address them briefly? Yes. So uh, it's really important that uh, in in terms of of a summary, it's really important to understand that um, we shouldn't put our, our leaders on these big pedestals um, uh, as sort of as a perfect people and, and almost as if it's taking a profit, for example. Uh, sometimes we, we elevate our past and current profits as if sort of God is the sort of a puppet master and, and um, the prophet becomes the puppet and whatever God decides the prophet does. But fundamentally, that clashes with our understanding of agency. And if we understand that prophets still have agency, then prophets are able to make mistakes. And in navigating the way through some of these historical issues, it's really important to understand that um, we are talking about natural men. No doubt they've been, no doubt they were called of God. No doubt they made some wonderful and are wonderful people and have made some wonderful, powerful, God-directed decisions that have enhanced the church. I have no question about that at all. But in terms of living perfectly all the time and um, always being right on all policies, there there becomes a stumbling block. You know, Brigham Young mentioned General Conference that sort of men lived on the moon, and you know, um, and, and and if we took that literally, and we can quickly come to the conclusion wrongly that Brigham wasn't a prophet. There's mind games that critics play, um, and we can quickly become a, a victim to to that without a wider context and understanding. So to bring it back to, let's say, um, the priesthood issue, recognizing the prophets are still product of their times and essentially were influenced or themselves uh, were racist, influenced by racism or racist. And that is not to say that God himself is racist, but that, yes, as you say, there were mortal men trying to do the best they had with the personal knowledge that they had and also reflecting the society that they were a part of. I, it's not an easy answer. Like it's not easy to digest. It still makes me uncomfortable and sad because I would love to believe that God is regularly, you know, speaking to President Nelson and telling him exactly what should be done. Um, but as you say, yes, agency is still a part of um, our mortal existence and that applies to prophets as well. Absolutely. And, and it comes to um, our racist past. Um I think it's also important for us to recognise that um, we are far from alone in this in this journey, and, and and racism was absolutely systemic. And and ask yourself the question: you know, if, if if you identified yourself as a white person back into in Brigham's day, uh, would you growing up in, in 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 the way that he grew up? What would make you so different? Would you not have been racist? You know, I think sometimes we look, we do, we can look back on the past with a sort of a twenty-first century lens, and we can also judge people ourselves. But but times were different, and um, and I think a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of charity and kindness in, in in reading history in in the right context can help. Um, but I, but I also accept this that doesn't make it perfectly comfortable. Um, and you raise a very good point, Maddie. But in terms of uh, Finding faith-promoting insights, I, I do think it's important to understand context, which is why these insights um, and this discussion, I think, is so valuable, um, because without it, one can easily fall victim to all sorts of critical games that can quickly lead people down the path away from God. Mm. And I wish we could go more into the context and the insights that you provide, but if anybody is thinking 
about yeah, whether it be polygamy or the priesthood history of our church, then I encourage you to go and read the chapter from Charlie's book because it, it yeah, it's a good place to start. So I've covered three reasons. What's another big issue that you see for why people so are LGBTQ is the, is, an, yeah. is, the, is the next logical so one. It's, it's a growing and important one. It is, is a biggie. Um, so, so the one true church um, sort of is, is elevated in, in, in the order because it, it exp- it's easier to understand um, context that can explain other issues. But, but I don't want to dilute the significance of the LGBTQ issue. And I think if the survey was done today, you would be right up there as number one or two. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a biggie yeah. and, um, one doesn't want to, to, uh, to, to, to duck it. Um, and that's not to say, you know, complex issues are rarely sorted by one or two sentence answers. And, and, and it, it, it's, LGBTQ issue is a tough one for the church and I'm not convinced we've fully addressed it and we've got an ongoing issue with it. Um, But there are things we can do to make our LGBTQ um, friends and allies naturally feeling a greater part of our faith uh, as opposed to somewhat sort of uh, alienated in any way. And and perhaps that's easier to say than to do. Um, But I I do feel that... uh, that we've 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 got an awful lot of learning to do. Yeah, I think the the elder brother analogy is very relevant here in thinking about not only what we might have witnessed, but also what we potentially are exhibiting, what behaviors behaviors we're exhibiting ourselves. There are a number of members in the church who identify as LGBTQ, and some remain within the church, um, some don't. And I can completely understand why, because why would you want to remain a religion that tells you that you are made in the wrong way or that you're, you're sinning? And when I think about, you know, foreordination and pre-mortal life and the incredible detailed creation that we see all around us from the natural wonders of the world to a newborn baby, it doesn't seem that God makes mistakes. So why then would he have people feel one way and then be told they're not allowed to be that way? There's no easy answer. I'm not expecting you to answer that, but um, I guess this is 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 the issue. Um, what are some of the insights that you found in exploring this? How can young people reconcile their feelings about the rights of LGBTQ people with the doctrines that we have about, say, chastity and traditional marriage? And, and this is a hard one. If If one were to... Recognize first of all that the church has had to think and, and is arguably evolving its policy here, and, it, and I may be maybe out of turn there, and it may never do so. But there are certainly a significant number of members of the church that are calling for further changes here, um, and we recognize we are in a living church, so one can pray for um, further changes over time. But also recognizing that where the church, for example, teaches a policy that we particularly might struggle with, perhaps the right approach here is to ultimately the, the title of your podcast, Mandy, is, is choosing faith. It's recognizing that you know this may be part of the wrestle. Uh, this may be part of what becoming Christ-like is. We are sort of left with this with this huge problem of, of the sort of clarity of the commandments and the temple recommend questions and the, and, and the like that make it very, very clear, the family proclamation make it very abundantly clear that there is an, an imbalance between those with LGBTQ uh, lifestyles and, and, and those with a more historically conventional one. And, and I think navigating that is, is uh, not easy. 
there are faith promoting groups uh, that that do that, and I talk about them in the in the book a little bit. North Star being one of them. But I think um, it comes to not putting your relationship with Christ uh, on the hook on the basis of the of the current church policy. Now that may seem a little bit of a cop out, um, but I do think it comes to again the role of the church. Um, the role of the church can support and sustain and enhance our personal relationship with Christ. And where we wrestle with one or two issues, the invitation there is to uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, recognizing that, that we are allowed to have doctrinal differences. We, we are able to disagree, for example, with church policy. Uh, and I think I think that the church is allowing for that, is recognizing a broader set of voices. Um, so it is tough. I, and I do believe the answer comes in a greater understanding, a greater uh, love and appreciation. And my my plea in the book is for those in the LG, of LGBTQ uh, or allies to please be a bigger voice, um, so that so the elder brothers particularly can uh, we can move forward in our faith, learn from you, uh, and grow with you. Yeah, thank you. I like connecting the term ally to the younger brother, elder brother analogy, noting that if you don't identify as LGBTQ yourself, that you can still play a significant role in not being the elder brother, in helping our our friends who do to feel still loved and um, connected and very much entitled to have a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, whether they're in the church or not. And, um, Again, no easy answer, but one thing that does help me is remembering that, as you say, we are in a living church and that maybe, um, and I know that I've listened to Tom Christopherson, Elder Christopherson's brother, who is gay. He says this, we just don't have the revelation yet. We're just waiting for the answers still and that God in his infinite knowledge and mercy, again, still working with people of the time, will eventually reveal more to us. I don't know if that will happen, but yeah. We have come some way in recognising as a church that um, people are born gay. Uh, in fact, I think the the latest For Strength of Youth pamphlet specifically says that um, feeling same-sex attraction is not a sin. It is a good step. But of course, it doesn't. the unanswered question is why, if God makes many of his children that way, uh, and and people are born gay. Why are they then uh, are not allowed to, uh, for example, uh, worship in, in the temples and, and, and the like? Um, and and it's a uh, it's not an easy question. Uh, it's not an easy question for the church to answer. But I but I think I think yes, more patience and faith is required on this one. I look forward to that time that uh, mm-hmm. we can we can maybe on the receiving end of that revelation. But if it doesn't come. If nothing else, then I think we all need to play an important part. There has been so much hurt, so many, so much damage, so many families uh, have, have, have suffered, and, and uh, even lives have been lost when we have, as a church, have failed to identify the crying and desperate need for those LGBTQ who've, who've been so marginalised, so un- so cruelly in many instances. And I'm, I'm excited for the change. Well, you you make a call uh, to action, I suppose, in your book, really pleading for young people to be advocates for the changes that they would like to see in the church. Not necessarily huge doctrinal changes, but cultural tweaks as well that can make being in the church a safer, more loving, inclusive place for the next generation. 
what kind of things can we do as millennials to affect change? That's a, that's a great question. And um, it will take some time. But I think we must come to a, an understanding that the church is in crisis and that realization that you know, three in four people are leaving. Uh, one can't sustain that over a a significant period of time before you've got a major problem in, in, in membership numbers. What the invitation then is for millennials to be firm in their values, not compromise what they fundamentally feel, and bring to the table voices that that, that call for change, but change in a way that's, that's not militant, but is um, calling for changes at, at a local level. There are things that millennials can do. There, there are sort of um, wider leadership opportunities that are beginning to begin, become available to them. But it's, but I'm, I'm not saying that's easy, Maddie. And, and, I, and I recognise that um, that sadly many of the changes, perhaps that we're beginning to, to see, come after so many have, have, have left the faith. Mm. So the invitation comes in not compromising values and staying in the church, I would argue, will bring about a greater change rather than simply leaving the church and then trying to, may or may not be trying to affect change from, from being outside it. As the church does mature and grow, I fundamentally believe it'll, it'll allow for a, a wider set of voices that, that can be a little bit more tolerant than a sort of a, than the all-in, all-out culture that I think is so damaging. Hmm. And certainly, I appreciate my friends who maybe have ideas that are considered a little bit progressive, a little bit rebellious. Um, I love the discussions that I have with those friends, and I appreciate so much when they remain in the church because I feel that they enrich the wider experience of what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I feel so sad when I have friends or hear of people leaving the church because I feel like I'm losing allies. And, and yeah, as they say, it feels like we're in a little bit of a crisis mode at times. Um, what I would love to see is a space where even if you don't agree with everything, that we all still feel like we can stay because I think that makes us richer, more um, empathetic and loving disciples. So we've talked about the judgment in the church, people feeling misunderstood by leaders. We've talked about uh, the one true church, LGBTQ issues. There are obviously a myriad of reasons really that people are leaving the church. We've covered, I think, a few. What I really enjoyed in your book, after you've explored all of these reasons and you've given your insights where you can, you have a little section which addresses why you choose to stay, acknowledging that it's an imperfect organization run by mortal men. And you've talked about how the focus should be on Jesus Christ, our personal relationship with him, and the church is just a supporting mechanism. And that seems to be the way that it's moving anyway with the home-centered church that President Nelson is, is pushing. What are some of the reasons, though, that you stay in the church? Because I really enjoyed this and I felt myself agreeing with all of them. So I love this sense of, in the book, I, I give sort of three examples, really. And, I, and for me, um, the, the first one was um, the ability that the, the, what the church brings to us, we can echo in the home. The ability, the things that we learn, that we can, we can uh, encourage our children, that can, that can ultimately shape uh, behavior and, and invites a sense of structure and order and respect for God. And I think the church absolutely does that. And then the second thing I think the church does for me is it brings a sense of, sort of purpose and understanding of, of what's really important. 
Um, and so when I have a bad day at work, for example, it allows me some sort of sense of perspective, a sense of context that, uh, that I think is important in a, in a, in a troubled world. And, and then... And then the final answer in, in, in the book, I also talk about um, the, the miracles and the sense of community. The church, it brings to the world uh, an incredible sense of um, community and the miracles that can come and the fellowship and the love that can be felt uh, by a community of saints is a powerful enforcing reason why, uh, why I choose to stay. You know, I, I just remembered something that Michelle, your wife, has uh, said before. I think it must have been while I was on my mission, seven in your ward, which was or your branch, which is very uh, lovely experience for me. And she said this, and it resonated quite strongly with me at the time. Even if it all turns out to be complete nonsense, and I've got this entire faith wrong, I wouldn't change it because. It's a great life. It's a wonderful way to raise my kids. It provides us a sense of community. It gives us a structure. Um, you know, where else would I be, essentially? It's a paraphrase, but but that was a sentiment, and I, I agree with that. It's interesting that some of our older children um, are saying similar things. That they, you know, one or two of them have left the church, but they acknowledge the fact that they've had a good childhood. They've had, they've made, had wonderful friends and a good structure and a good life, good principles, morals. And I would hope one day uh, a faith system that they will come back to. So you wrap up the book with a chapter titled From Believing to Becoming. Can you explain a little bit about what that entails? Certainly. So so having addressed the, the, the top 10 issues, I couldn't leave it there. The final chapter really is recognizing that what is our what is our motive? How does one come from believing in Christ to becoming a disciple of Christ? And for me, it's down to to the motive. What motivates us we want to try and move our faith from simply like buying an insurance policy or belonging to a club and treating our church membership as if we've got some sort of fast pass to heaven and more to making uh sacrifices um that that don't feel like sort of long list of lds chores but actually that are motivate us to please god in the same way, for example, that if one's in a, sort of a, a young relationship and one might go and buy flowers for, say, a girlfriend, or a girlfriend might buy a gift for a boyfriend, we don't do these things because well, they're a chore. We do these things because we want to give. We, we're excited by the relationship and we want to please our partner. And in the same way, I think we, we want to navigate through life and, the, and our life in the church, not by thinking, well, we sort of endure to the end by a long list of these LDS chores, but we're motivated because we naturally want to please God. And I think that when we're on that path, it allows us to remove ourselves from some of the, the little sharp attacks that can come, but because we're, we're elevated, incentivized in our a natural desire for a close relationship. And we feel that relationship. We feel his love. He provides for us an unconditional, loving acceptance of who we are, all our warts and all. And it's through his unconditional love for us and his good grace through the power of the atonement that we can become at one with him. So it's not about us. It's losing ourselves in him by not counting. Like the workers in the vineyard, we were hired at different points in the day and, and those that hired last received the same pay as those hired first and those that hired first uh, with, were rubbing their hands and thinking this is marvellous we're really going to get a good dollop here and, and ended up receiving the same 
And that's a really good parable. And I think as Latter-day Saints, we should understand that parable more. And it ultimately comes to, for me, in the, in the bigger picture, what we're trying to do is to feel the joy and the love of simply pleasing God. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Charlie, for all of your insights today. If this interview has interested you, please go and read his book. It's short. It's easy to read. You can find it on Amazon. I got it on the Kindle for like $5 or something. So please do go ahead. And there's a number of resources that you list as well throughout the book where um, uh, organizations that are dedicated to helping members who are struggling with certain issues so some of those are like Fair Mormon, is it? Latter-day Saint Q&A YouTube channel was quite helpful for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, very, very very good. Huge number of resources there. And I've also drawn on a lot of non-LDS um, resources too because I, I don't believe we have a monopoly in truth, but I do think as collectively we can learn so much from them. And, but I, can I just – I don't describe myself as a sort of a, a professional author. I've tried to keep the cost term to as, as low as possible and any profits from the book are all going to – the, the wider cause of promoting interfaith and healing the the rifts between former and current members of the church. That is wonderful. Um, and thank you so much for what you're doing and being that bridge between uh, people outside our faith, but then also people who have left the faith as well. And I really hope that, yes, people listening, go and read your book because it really soothed my soul in a lot of uh, concerns that I had. So thank you. Now, I think it might be time to just wrap up with our final question and um, it relates to the title of the podcast. So, yes, obviously the, the podcast is called Choosing Faith and I decided upon that in acknowledgement that in the absence of, you know, hard evidence that faith in a life of religious worship is really something that we choose. Now, for some, this is not enough and you've suggested that, yes, this approach is a good start, but, you know, for those who are in a faith crisis and evaluating their beliefs, Choosing faith might not really be enough to get them over the line. So what does it mean to you and what can one do to stay firm in their faith when choosing just isn't working for them? So choosing faith, um, you know, it is a wonderful start, no question about that. Um, but I think we need to be careful on if that means that we're going to be provided with sort of a, a perfect answers, and um, then we're going to be disappointed. And so choosing faith um by definition, requires an element of wrestle. If we choose faith, that's a, a great start. And if, and if that's not, not enough, if it's not working, then I think uh, one other question to ask is, what is my motive? What am I really trying to do? Um, and I think ultimately, if one reaches a sort of a breaking point, if one's really sincere, I fundamentally believe that Christ sincerely and literally listens to his children when they cry out to him. I wouldn't be afraid to do that. You know, take the dog for a walk, go for a run, whatever it may be, find a quiet space and recognize that uh, that you are a child of God. Uh, and if you put yourself in a vulnerable position in accepting that you are lost, you might be pleasantly surprised at what our maker may do for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Charles Lawson. I hope you found our conversation insightful, validating, and faith-promoting. The Millennial Shot, a spiritual inoculation for the modern Latter-day Saint, is available on Amazon at very little cost in both hardcover and Kindle form. Whether you're currently questioning one or two things about the church, have a friend who's doing so, or as Charles put it, have found yourself at breaking point, we hear you. 
As you've heard throughout this episode, many Latter-day Saints and Christians around the world are struggling. You may find this book a helpful place to start, but overall, please know you are not alone. If this episode helped you in any way, head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review or even better, share it with a friend who might benefit from Charlie's insights. Catch you next time.